Ephesians chapter 2. So, previously in Ephesus, uh, we have spent three weeks on our Ephesian journey. The first week we were not in Ephesians, we were in Acts 19, and we made the point that whenever Paul and the Spirit showed up in Ephesus, there was transformation. And then in the second week, whenever we got into Ephesians itself, we asked the question, what drives you? What is the steam in your engine that keeps you moving? And made the point that for Paul, it was a recognition and a thanksgiving for the incredible blessings that God has poured out on us in Christ. That that just brought a a tidal wave of praise and thanksgiving from him. Last week, we looked at prayer and power. In the second half of Ephesians 1, it's almost as if Paul stopped midway through, took a breath, learned how to use a full stop, and then started to pray that the people would actually get it, that the Holy Spirit would come and make these things real in the hearts of his hearers. And then also he then moved on at the end of Ephesians 1 to talk about power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead that is also available and at work in us. Not a reduced version of that power, but the same power. And I ended off last week looking at the fact at the end of Ephesians 1, where Paul says that the church is his body, the fullness of him, and made the simple point that if we want the world to know Jesus, we need to plant churches. If the church is the way he will be represented on earth to people, then we need as many churches as we possibly can so that Jesus is represented. There are other things that will allow people to get a sort of a small taste of him. There are events and there are different various things that that, that churches do, and there's nothing wrong with those things in any way at all. But the key way that Jesus is made manifest in a community, the fullness of him is through the church, his people. So made the point that churches need to be planted. And today then... The question is, what's wrong? What's wrong with humanity? What is wrong with mankind? What is the big deal? In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, that's where we're going to go today. Because some people look at Christianity and think Christianity is just a crutch. It's just something that you can use to lean on to help you get through life, through the difficult times. Uh, It is something for weak people who cannot uh, stand their ground or cannot fight their own battles. They need something to lean on, so they have come up with this Christianity thing in order to lean on. That's what some people might say. Jesus is, is a bit like Casper, the friendly ghost. He's your invisible friend who you talk to whenever times are tough. That's the view some might have of Christianity. And people maybe just say, well, I work hard, and I come home in the evening, and I have my dinner, and I watch a bit of TV, and I have some fun at the weekend. What's so bad about my life? Really, why do I need to be saved? What does this saved word actually mean? Um, what do you need saved from? Yeah, I'm not that bad. A lot of people would have that attitude and just say, I'm not that bad. I work hard, look after my family, I have a bit of crack, sometimes across the boundaries, whatever. But I'm really not that bad. Why do you keep telling me I need to be saved? 
So the question is, what is wrong? What is the problem? Let's read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Paul is continuing straight on from chapter 1, obviously. He didn't put in any chapter breaks. He didn't put any verses or any big numbers in or any paragraph headings. He just flowed. And he says at the start of chapter 2, As for you, you were dead. That's well cheerful, isn't it? You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast." For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It would be right to pray after that. Father, we thank you. We thank you that your spirit moved Paul to write these words. We thank you, Father, that you made sure these words were preserved over the centuries so that your people could be nourished by them even today. And Lord, this is rich, and this is deep. And Lord, I pray you would enable us and open our hearts, that you would give us this spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you better. And Lord, that we may gain understanding and encouragement from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So you were dead. The church does not exist to make people feel better. And you might say, well, you're doing a great job of not making me feel better because I got myself out of the house and I came in and had a cup of coffee and a a bite to eat and a wee chat and now you have just declared that I'm dead. We're not here with an offer of this will make you feel better. The church exists to offer life. I don't think God is really that interested in good and evil or right and wrong. I think God, those things are important, but I think over and above all of that, God is interested in life and death. He's interested in what are the things that bring life to people? What are the things that bring death to people, spiritually speaking? And Paul says that without God, men and women are dead. No matter how alive they may feel, Physically, no matter how healthy they may be, how fit they may be, 
how wealthy they may be, how popular they may be, all of those things that people can feed off. Paul sees right through it and he says, you're dead without God. In fact, he uses the word in in verse 1, the Greek word nakros, he literally says, you were corpses. Paul calls it like it is. He said, you were corpses. And if we were created, as as he writes in Colossians 1, if we're created by him and we're created for him, then we cannot live without him. We can't. There is no such thing as a human being fully alive without God. It is impossible. And Paul is not speaking about a particular segment of society. We have this wonderful thing that we sometimes do where we look down our noses at other people and we say, well, that person's dead in sin because of some particularly awful thing that that person has done. Paul says, no, all of us, all of us, every single person, no matter what their background Whether they're slave or free, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're black or white, male or female, old or young, doesn't make any distinction. All were dead in transgressions and sin. And the question is then, what what killed us? And Paul says in in verse 1, you were dead because of your transgressions and your sins. People don't like those words. (laughs) And in the modern church, those words don't maybe get used quite enough they're seen as old-fashioned words and irrelevant words and I came here to get a cup of coffee and some nice food and a bit of chat and a song and to feel good I don't want my self-esteem to take a bang this morning (laughs) but Paul says sin and transgression killed us and continue to kill people Two different words, and they don't mean the same thing. The word transgression means to cross a boundary. It basically means to do what you should not do. I'm guilty. Anyone else guilty? I'm sure there are. To cross a boundary. That is what, what some people might say, sins of commission. I have done something that I ought not to have done. And sin, the word sin itself literally means Falling short of a standard. Missing the target. I'm guilty. Both hands up as usual. I am guilty. I have crossed boundaries and done things, committed things that are offensive to God and that rob me of life. And I have failed to do things that God calls me to do. Sins of commission, what I've committed. Sins of omission, what I have omitted, what I have not done. Those are the things that have killed. And sin leads to death. A really simple thing that you need to get about God is that God is life. He is the author of life. He is the giver of life. If we turn and walk away from him, then we are basically saying, thanks for the offer, but I prefer death. That's it. It's as simple and as blunt as that. And you might turn away from God and and you're not going off with the intention of doing any harm to anyone. You don't want to rob people. You don't want to kill people. You don't want to damage people. But by walking away from God, you're walking away from the one and only source of life. You cannot make it on your own. Sin 
is what has killed us. So the first thing that Paul says at the start of chapter 2 is he says that we were dead. He also says that we were enslaved. He doesn't actually use that word, but I think it's a good word to sum up what he goes on to say in the next couple of verses. There are three things that we are enslaved to, three things that have caused us to sin. The first one in verse 2, he says, The sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world or the ways of this age. Eugene Peterson puts this really well in the message. He says that you let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. I love that first sentence. That's what Paul's talking about here. Mankind without God. If, if you do not follow Jesus, if, you do not, if you're not interested in the life that God offers, what you're doing is you're letting the world, which does not know the first thing about living, teach you and tell you how to live. And you don't have to spend long, with teenagers in particular, to see that. Just being swept along on the current of whatever is popular. There are loud voices out there in culture and a lot of people are listening to them. They have no mind of their own to discern what is life-giving and what brings death. They will go with what is popular. They will allow the world to tell them how to live. Simple, folks. If you want to know how to live, you go to the one who gives life. You go to the one who created life and he will tell you how to live. John Stott talks about people not having a mind of their own, but just surrendering to popular culture. Unable to stand their ground against the barrage of what's coming, particularly through all forms of media and entertainment. So we are enslaved to the ways of this age, the thinking of the world system that we're living in, a world system that is hostile to God. The second thing that we're enslaved to is the ruler of the kingdom of the air, a.k.a. Satan, the devil, a real, literal, personal force of evil that is utterly hostile against God. Utterly hostile against King Jesus and utterly hostile against every human being on this planet. Not just Christians. You see, no matter whether you're a Christian or not, you are made in the image of God. When Satan sees you, he hates you. It is irrational. It is unexplainable. There is no mercy in it. He hates you. And whether you're a Christian or not, he wants to destroy your life. And Paul says that those who do not follow Jesus, who do not trust God and receive the life that comes from him, who walk away and say, I will do my own thing, they are then subject and enslaved to spiritual powers that he will say more about later in the letter. It's almost as if when you turn from God and you say, you've offered me life, but I'm going my way, the very step and the very process of doing that energizes spiritual powers that are hostile against you. 
It's as if they just pick up on that and they, they gain momentum from it when they see you walk away from God. This is real. It is not to be ignored. It is not to be obsessed over, but it is real. And we will not progress far as a church, locally or globally, if we ignore what Paul says is one of the things that people are enslaved to without God. This is a battle that is spiritual. It is a battle that is in the heavenly realms. And it must be won in prayer. The third thing he said that we're enslaved to is the sinful nature. Now, what what the sinful nature basically is, here's here's a good summary of it. It is a craving within humanity who doesn't know God and doesn't follow God. And it basically says, my desires must be satisfied. My lusts must be gratified. My way must be taken. My will must be done. That's the sinful nature. That part of you that never gets past tantrums. Yeah? That part of a human being that even in supposed maturity and adult life still stamps its feet and wants its way. Doesn't do it in quite the same way. Tantrums are an amazing thing to observe in children. You learn as you go along. Initially you try to stop them and then you learn to ignore them. But so many people still have that within them. That nature that stamps its feet and says, Me. The world revolves around me. And if I want something, I should have it. And if somebody annoys me, I should damage them and not feel bad about it. The world revolves around me. That is the sinful nature. Sometimes it's translated flesh. And in Greek, it is the word flesh. But that's maybe slightly confusing for us because then we think of what we're made of. But that's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the sinful nature within a human being that is selfish and self-centered and does not want to honor God or love others. Now, if you take people who have that outlook on life, that their desires must be satisfied and so on, you imagine a relationship where one person in the relationship is like that. That is going to be absolute misery. You imagine a relationship or a marriage where both people are like that. And that is going to be absolutely explosive, destructive. It's going to cause collateral damage to everybody within range. That sort of way of living. It's, it's, and people say, it's, it's just me doing these things. It's, it's only, you know, don't, don't question me. Nobody gets hurt. Lots of people get hurt when people choose to live like that. Lots of people get hurt. Paul says we're enslaved to this sinful nature. Just to pop out of Ephesians briefly, I love this verse in Galatians 5, and you know that I love it because I go back to it again and again. As Christians, that sinful nature is dead. It's dead. We don't use it as an excuse for bad behavior. We don't use it as an excuse for sin. We believe what Paul writes in Galatians 5 where he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. So it's dead. We don't want a resurrection of that. Let it stay dead. So we were dead and we were enslaved. And also he goes on to say that we were objects of wrath. We were condemned. Jesus many times warned of coming judgment. If 
somebody was standing on the pavement on the side of the road and about to cross the road and a large vehicle was coming down the road, it would be rather unloving to not say stop or grab them and hold them back. Don't ever think you're being unloving when you are sharing the truth and the reality of judgment to come. It is a very loving thing to do. To not share that is to be unloving towards the rest of the human race. We're dead, we're enslaved, we were condemned. That's a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? For a Sunday morning. Nobody's smiling right now. Everybody's looking, looking fairly grim. Brought you down to the pits quite effectively. And note the context, because this, this is continuing on from Paul's prayer, where he said he wants the Spirit to come, the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. And I think that not only swings backwards into Ephesians 1 to understand the great things that God has done, but I think that prayer swings forward into Ephesians 2. And he's also praying, I want the Holy Spirit to reveal to you just how bad things were and how bad things are for those who are outside of Christ. It's a mournful picture, but it's no good going to the doctor if the doctor cannot accurately diagnose what is wrong with you before then trying to take some action. That's useless. You need a clear diagnosis, and Paul has given a very clear diagnosis in verses 1 to 3, but someone has not been mentioned yet. Someone has been absent from this picture of mankind, and that someone comes in in verse 4. One of the most incredible little phrases in the Bible is the phrase, but God. And Paul uses it so frequently where he paints a bleak reality and then he says, but God. It's almost as if he said, enough of that. Enough of that talk, enough of that negativity. He, he now swings gloriously on this little phrase from going down into the depths of negativity. He's right down in the pits of the reality of what life is outside of God. And now he wants to rise back up again into the heights of joy and hope. See, Paul can't finish on negatives. He just can't do it. It's not in the man. He doesn't avoid negatives, but he can't finish on them. He won't finish on them. He'll always rise back up and give hope to people. We were dead, we were slaves, we were condemned, but God. And then let me just read again, I read them earlier, but let me just read from verse 4, the next two or three verses, to you hear again the emphatic words that he uses. He talks about God's great love. Because of his great love, God who is rich in mercy. Did somebody tell you that God was angry and nasty and impatient? And unloving. And he just zaps anyone who does not do what they're told. Did somebody tell you that? There's a song we sing and it starts off with the words, I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like. Of what they think you're like. God is, I'm going to tell you what God is like. Take this away this morning. Those of you who maybe aren't sure about what God is like, take this away. God is rich in mercy. His love is great. Verse 5 ends with grace. Grace is another one of those words like saved and sin that people use in church but maybe have lost their meaning. Grace is when God shows us favor. 
that we don't deserve or merit in any way. In verse 7, we, we read about the incomparable riches of his grace. Incomparable riches. And if the problem is death, and if we're all basically walking dead, or we were walking dead, and some maybe still are walking dead, and we're just walking towards a future that is horrendous, what we need is someone to come and basically run ahead of us and blast a hole in that and come out the other side of it. Jesus has done that. Have you ever gone into a shop and asked if they have something? Quite innocently, you just go in, you're looking for, for something, and you, you, know, you ask, do you have one of these? And they then open a cupboard or take you into a room and just show you this vast array. You know, you go into a DIY shop and you want a screw. You know, just want a screw, one screw. And you just see a, a thousand different screws, different types, different coatings, different lengths, different thicknesses. Boom, you're just met with this. And you wish you hadn't asked. You know, you're just, this, this, an hour later, you're still there rummaging around trying to find something that'll do the job. It's almost as if you go to God and you say, have you got any love? This realization, if you've read verses 1 to 3 and you've realized you're dead and you go to God and say, have you got any love? Have you got any mercy? And God just swings open the door and says, come on in. Let me show you what I've got. He is great in his love. Great. Greek, mega. <laughs> mega. No need for translation. He is mega in his love. He is rich in mercy. And he says, come on in. Come on in. We were dead, but in verse 5 we read that God made us alive in Christ. We didn't just need a wee crutch to lean on. We didn't need an invisible friend to talk to. We were dead. We needed a resurrection. God made us alive in Christ. Jesus was always a bit of a liability at a funeral. You know? You wouldn't be sure whether to bring him or not. <laughs> he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He raised the, the son of a widow in a little town called Nain from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. It's almost, if I could be slightly comical without being irreverent, it's almost as if it was like, oops. <laughs> Came in contact with death and look what just happened. Death couldn't stain him and it could not affect him and it could not bring him down. He infected death with life. God has made us alive in Christ. We were enslaved, but God has raised us up with Christ in verse 6. And we were condemned, but God has seated us. He has enthroned us, taken us from a place of condemnation, and he has enthroned us. And we learned last week that that meant all the spiritual powers that are under Jesus' feet are now under my feet and your feet as well. Authority over them because of what he has done. Everything last week that God said his power had done in Jesus, he now says he's also done that for us. We are in him and everything that has happened to him has happened to us. And one of the reasons for it is that in the coming ages, he wants to show the incomparable riches of his grace. God basically just wants to, to throw open the doors of heaven and have all of these 
human beings, made in his image, born again, transformed by his grace, made alive, and just say, look at this. Look at what my life has given to these people. Here I am. There's a great verse in the Old Testament and it's quoted in Hebrews. Here I am and the children you have given me. Jesus going to his father and saying, look at all these children that have been won because of my death and resurrection. All of these trophies of grace. And God will put them on display for all of the ages. So what now? What now? It's by grace we've been saved through faith. Karl Barth said, faith is the empty hand which grasps Christ. In other words, I come with nothing. I don't bring anything to the party. If you think you have to bring something to the party, you bring nothing. When you go to a friend's house, you sometimes bring a box of chocolates or you bring uh, something to drink at dinner time or, or you bring a bunch of flowers or whatever. You, you frequently bring something with you. When you come to this house, you bring nothing. Nothing. Dead people have nothing to bring. So don't be thinking you have to somehow clean up or get to some level of merit before you can actually go in and enjoy the party. The doors are wide open. The supply is abundant. Your hands are empty, which is great because that means you can use them to cling to Jesus. Even the very act of faith itself is a gift from God. So what? What now? The passage ends, and I end, in verse 10. Where Paul says, we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And some of you might look at that and say, there it is, at last. You've talked about grace. You've talked about power. You've talked about dead being raised to life. You've talked about love. But at last, here it is. It all boils down to the fact that we have to do works. That we have to keep rules. And you maybe look at this verse and you say, there it is. I knew it was coming. I know Christianity. Christianity is about rules and about being a wee do-gooder. And, and that's it. And finally, he's got there. He's avoided it for nine verses, but finally, there it is. No. No. That's not what this means. In fact, in the very previous verse, or in verse 8, where Paul says that, or in verse 9, he says that it's not by works. So he's not talking about meriting favor with God. What he's saying is, you're God's workmanship. And the outcome of that is that now you will do good works. Not because you have to. But in the first week that we were in Ephesus in Acts 19, it was all about transformation. We went to Ezekiel and talked about this this verse where Ezekiel looks forward to a time when God says, I'll put a new heart in you. I will take out your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I will transform you. And you will not do good works out of a sense of obligation. You will do them because you want to. You will do them because transformation in your heart has taken place. You were dead. You've been made alive. You've been given a new heart and a new spirit and a new motivation in life for everything. And therefore you do good works. Whenever Peter was preaching in Acts chapter 
10 in the house of Cornelius, he summed up Jesus' ministry and said, he went about doing good works. Somebody once commented on that and said, all I do is go about. (laughs) Jesus went about doing good works. And Jesus told us that he wants us to do good works, not that we would look good, but that the Father would be glorified. There's a great line in the movie Amazing Grace where William Pitt is speaking to William Wilberforce about his recent conversion to Christianity. And Pitt says to him, are you going to praise the Lord or are you going to change the world? The Christian answer is both. <laughs> I'm going to do both. Pitt wanted to know, is this, is this just going to, are you just going to sit around and sing songs? Are you actually going to do something good? And William Wilberforce did some serious good. Absolute inspiration. If you've never seen that film, I highly recommend it for the whole family. Powerful, powerful film. When Paul writes that we are God's workmanship, it's beautiful. What he literally is saying is we are God's poem. It's the Greek word. We are God's poem. We are God's masterpiece. God's work of art. The passage starts saying you were a corpse. And the passage ends, once Jesus has done his work in the middle, the passage ends saying you're a masterpiece. You are the absolute pinnacle of creation. The beauty of the world around us, particularly at this time of the year, is just stunning. You just, you know, you take a walk around Castle Wellen Lake or somewhere like that and you just feel thanksgiving rising up within you. That's not the pinnacle of creation. That's not the pinnacle of creation. Whenever we turn the computer off at the end on a Sunday morning and there's photos then start looping on the screen which were preloaded on the TV when it was bought, beautiful scenes and lakes and mountains, that's not the pinnacle of creation. That is not the work that God looks at and says, that's my finest work. His finest work is you and me. His finest work is a human being fully alive. Fully alive in Christ. Not just a human being, but a human being fully alive. That is the pinnacle of his creative work. John Stott was commenting on this passage and he said about how he had been at a, some sort of dinner or function and there was a tremendous portrait on the wall uh, of, of a person. And a lot of the guests were looking at it and remarking how wonderful this portrait was. But the question that they kept asking was not, who is the person in the portrait? The question they kept asking was, who painted that? We want the world to look at us and not say, wow, you're amazing. What a portrait, what a picture. We want the world to look at us and say, who painted you? Who remade you? Whose masterpiece are you that you live like this? All glory goes to him. You know, some people go back to verse 3 and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much done. You go back to verse 3 where it talks about how we were by nature objects of wrath. 
And then they say, God, why do you have to be so wrathful? (laughs) Why can't you just lighten up? Why do you have to get so agitated about sin? Is it really that big a deal? Could you not just you lower the standard a little bit? Give people a wee bit of breathing room, God, because you're really quite harsh about this. You're a bit unrelenting about this, this wrath thing. You just say, folks, that there are things that will destroy you. There are things that will deface the image of God in you. If God does not hate those things, then he is neither good nor loving. If he tolerates things that he knows will damage you, that is unloving in the extreme. His wrath against sin is justified because he loves us. It's not a case of, I will zap you if you do that. It's a case of, come to me and have life. The consequences of not coming to me are unimaginable. Come to me and be fully alive. There's no other way. Any other way leads only to one place. You can walk away from God in a thousand different directions, but they all end up in the same destination. Death. Come and have life. Come to the one who loves you and does not want sin to destroy you and wants to make you fully alive. If you don't walk with God, I challenge you, find anyone who does and ask them, would you like to go back to the way it used to be? (laughs) You know, you claim to have this life. Let's talk about the way you lived 10 years ago, five years ago. Would you like to go back? Because I tell you, anyone who has tasted and seen that God is good will never go back, will never crave to climb back into that place of death and reside there. Because once you've tasted this life, nothing else will touch it. So let's pray. We're going to celebrate the resurrection and the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus in communion. Stefan's going to lead us in that in a, in a few minutes. It's a good passage to be going into communion from. But let's just pray before we praise God and give Him thanks for what He has done. Father, we love You. Father, I pray that anyone here who has heard stories and has in their minds then created a a picture of you that is inaccurate. I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that that will be erased and removed. I pray that every single one of us will go out this morning knowing that you love us, that you are great in your love for us, and that you are rich in mercy and grace. And everything you offer us is good and is life-giving. And anything in us that you want to see removed and put to death, it is because you love us and those things only bring death. So I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would etch the truth of this onto the hearts of every person this morning. Take away the lies about God. The lies about his anger and his impatience and replace them with the truth of his love 
If you really love anyone, you will passionately hate anything that would do them any harm. Anything. Father, may we understand your wrath is all directed against those things that bring death to humanity. And may we receive life this morning. And may we who have received this life and have enjoyed it be renewed in the depths of our thanksgiving and our celebration of it. You're a wonderful Savior, Jesus. And may this church be the fullness of you in this town along with every other Christian, every other church, every other work that is motivated by showing your love for people. May we collectively show the fullness of Jesus and bring the life of God to this place and other places. Thank you, Lord.